So if you're new here today, my name's Jono and I welcome you to Access Church. We would normally um, head out here for morning tea after our service and cafes open, etc. for you to purchase a drink. Um, but today, given the wet weather, we're going to actually have morning tea out in the kids' auditorium. So we welcome you to join us for that and just hope you can be blessed as you do that today. Every Easter weekend, churches come together to celebrate a resurrected saviour. That's the point. That's what the church hails at this time of the year. The greatest enemy of life, death, has been forever conquered because of what Jesus did the first Easter Sunday morning. Because he overcame it and stands now on the other side of death, he stands there ready to welcome us on the other side and, and embrace us when we finish our life on this earth. Now all of this hangs upon a resurrection. That Christ rose from the dead is the centrepiece of the whole deal. Now if you've been an insider for a, for a while, I might just get you to take this down a little, mate, a little hot on me here. If you've been a church insider for a long time, all of that kind of is like just acceptable to you. However, if you stand on the outside and examine this claim, it sounds outrageous. Somebody rose from the dead. You can't be serious. If you're watching online, you're like 60 seconds into this talk, and you go, already checking out, looking for something else on YouTube about now. Because how could anybody take this serious? Like if you're talking metaphor, that would be okay. If you're talking analogy, that would be okay. If you're talking about literal, physical resurrection, then come on, mate. Give me a break. You can't be serious. Isn't that up there with Snow White? and Jack and the Beanstalk and Mary Poppins. Like, aren't we just talking fairy tales? If we're talking literal, physical resurrection. If you're a rational person and you're 44 and it's your first time here hearing this, you're probably like, I think I'm about ready to check out. Well, maybe the other end of the spectrum, you're 14, and you're here for one reason and one reason only. You've been dragged here by your parents. And you think, well, I've just got a few more years to endure this Easter nonsense and then I'll be able to decide what to do with my weekend when Easter rolls around once I'm making my own decisions. You're not outwardly complaining, but inwardly you're very, very cynical of this whole deal. Well, today, let's put this resurrection claim under the microscope. And Friday was much about the heart it was a message to relate to your heart that we shared here on Friday. Today, I want to engage your head, at least in the first instance. I want you to think for a little over this resurrection. I want you to be an investigator with me. Now, if you're so cynical, you're just finding it hard to go in with an open mind, even for a brief moment, then let me put it to you like this. If you had a rich relative that just passed away, and it came to your attention that they'd set up a secret bank account for you with $3 million in it? Now, you'd be right to be cynical. You might find that story hard to believe, but wouldn't you check it out? Isn't the payoff too huge to just ignore the possibility that that could be true? In the same way, the payoff of a relationship with Jesus is too big to simply ignore. Jesus is promising us a fresh start now and the hope of eternal life and living in a perfect world with him. That's too big a payoff to just ignore and not take seriously without at least exploring 
the idea. Tim Keller, who I credit some of the inspiration of this talk today, says this, and I agree with him. If we try explaining the changed lives of the early followers of Jesus without resurrection, we may find ourselves making greater leaps of faith than that of a resurrection. Much of the ground we'll cover today is inspired by these thoughts. First, let's pray. God, I realise everybody under the sound of my voice today arrives in all different headspaces this Easter. Some celebrate a risen king and say, hallelujah. Others seek and aren't so sure. And still others are even cynical. Lord, thank you that in your great mercy, you can meet us wherever we are today. Wherever we are, whatever state of mind we find ourselves in, Lord, come near and minister to us today by the power of your Holy Spirit. Show us who you are. Thank you, God, that you are so patient, that you're not quickly turned off by our reservations, but you continue to strive with us in your love and grace. Thank you for the words of life that you've passed down through the centuries and they come to us today and we turn to them now and we ask that some of these words would leap off the page into our minds, into our hearts, deep into our spirit and refresh us and renew us and change us today by them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've got a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 20. If you've got an electronic device, you can find the notes in the YouVersion app as per usual in there. So we're reading from John chapter 20, verse 1. The crucifixion has happened. We talked about that on Friday. The physical, the emotional, the spiritual pain that Jesus endured at the cross. Now he's buried in a tomb. Let's read about it. John 20, verse 1 says this. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. She came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. Verse 9, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but did not realise that it was Jesus. He asked a woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, 
Tell me where you put him and I'll get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. How incredible would that moment have been? Let's hover above this story for a moment as investigators and ask what can we notice? What can we see as we apply logic to this scene that's unfolding? The first piece of detail we see is that Mary Magdalene finds a tomb and runs off to tell Peter in verse 2 and the other disciple, unnamed, who scholars think is John, the actual writer of this book, uh, comes running as well. Now, as an investigator, you would rightly ask, if this is John who's writing this book, why does he leave himself unnamed? Well, I don't think it's a secret. I think it's a modest way of introducing yourself as an eyewitness, especially, verse 4, when you've got to say that, uh, on this journey towards the tomb, we were both running and, look, I was much faster than the other guy, so I got there first. Yeah, he was slow, I was quick, so I outran him and I managed to get there first. When you think about those circumstances, I think it's fair that he's subtle in his introduction. So they arrive, and if you accept the theory just mentioned, John arrives first in verse 5. He stoops down and scrutinises the evidence before him. There's a lot of detail provided here, which I think is unnecessary detail. Like if you think about uh, forming an account of a resurrection, it really doesn't matter who arrived there first. wouldn't matter if it was Peter or John. That doesn't actually help the story much at all, but it's detail that's given that probably indicates it's been written from an eyewitness. Then Peter arrives second. He's the slower runner of the two, verse 6. And as Peter always does, he takes it to another level. He's not going to stand outside the tomb and just kind of be polite as he looks around. He just waltzes right in there. He, he heads in and he's going to do first and think later. This is the kind of guy that Peter is. So he's in there like Flynn. And verse 7 tells us what he saw. He sees the head and body coverings. He sees the remains minus the body of Jesus. Now, some people may not recognise that the New Testament was first written in Greek and then translated to English for our benefit. And that is very much a benefit. Unless you can read fluent Greek, we're in trouble, right? So we are able to read and understand God's word because it's been translated to us. But unfortunately, this word saw here in verse 6 is not really helpful when translated to English. See, we... We see this word saw and we think visual. I just saw a bird flying past. That's how we use the word saw. But this is not at all close to the Greek word here, which is theoreo, from where we get the word theorise. So Peter is observing the facts to create a theory. That's what the word saw means in verse 6. He's standing there discerning, deliberating, processing what he's seeing, the crime scene if you like. He's thinking in order to create a theory, probably thinking something like this. If grave robbers took the body, why leave the linen with the valuable spices behind? That doesn't make sense. Why take the stuff off the body that would keep it from smelling? 
On the other hand, if disciples took the body, why dishonour the Lord by taking his clothes off and carrying him around naked? I mean, so Peter's standing there creating theories behind what he's observing. Peter's thinking it over, using his mind, engaging rationale, his reasoning, and so does John when he joins him in there in verse 8. They both process. So these men, when they discover the tomb of Jesus, do what? Think. Think. They use their faculties. They reason. They show an eagerness towards logic and thinking. This tells me the Christian faith isn't built around fairy tales. If you think it were, John here is pushing back, saying you don't have to adopt blind faith when you think about the details of Christian faith. No, no, there's reasoning involved in this. You use your mind. In fact, one of the greatest commands Jesus gave to us, his people, was love God with your heart, soul, mind and strength. God wants us to use our minds, our reasoning. This isn't the enemy of faith. They can work together as friends. So they're standing there as they arrive at this empty tomb, theorising over what they're seeing, trying to put all the details together, trying to understand it, using logic to work out what is going on. How long did they do that for? I'm not sure. But just because we can read it in 30 seconds doesn't mean that was a 30-second process. Perhaps they stood there for quite some time, processing, working out what was going on. I would suggest that every single disciple that eventually became a believer in the resurrection actually took a lot of convincing. There's one famous one who has become known as Doubting Thomas, and he took a lot of convincing, but actually they all did. None of them were quick to accept it. They all wanted facts. They all wanted proof. They all wanted evidence to accept that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Now, Thomas is famous for this. When he hears accounts of resurrection, he's like, yeah, right, pigs fly. I just saw one. Did you see that? Did you see that? There was a purple one just now. This is Thomas. He's not at all quick to accept the resurrection. He's a no-nonsense type of guy. He's not touchy-feely. Thomas is standing back and going, I won't have a bar of this story unless I see it with my own eyes. Thomas eventually got what he wanted. He did get to process it. He said, John, this is where this story gets unfair. I'd love to be able to process some data relating to Christianity. But what do I have 2,000 years on? If I want to process like they did, what do I do? I can't be an eyewitness of these things in 2021. How do I apply a logical mind to the resurrection claim? Well, our first consideration is in verse 1. The women who were the first carriers of the empty tomb news. Now, the empty tomb is often held up as evidence of Jesus' resurrection, but actually who arrived there first is even more powerful. Factors in considering the resurrection, the female pioneers who carried this story forward. It's significant that all four Gospels are in accord. All four male writers say this, the girls got there first. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, a male quartet consistently say the same message. The girls arrive there first and all the ladies in the house should be going, whoop, whoop. <laughs> well, steady down. This wasn't a good thing. This wasn't a good thing. Not at all. For the validity of the gospel message, this was scandalous. In early times, this was the Achilles heel of the Christian movement. Why? Because women in a Jewish worldview at the time had such a low societal ranking. So to put them forward as the heroes of the story who were the first carriers of this message was actually a huge problem. Now, give me a second to clarify before ladies start throwing things. In, in culturally nowadays, we live far, far away from them. In a first century Jewish culture, women weren't highly valued and it would be very, very unusual to pick them as being the heroes of a story. If you were out to fabricate something to get a movement going, you would pick a well-respected man, a business owner, an intellect, a professor, anyone but a woman. The Jewish culture was one of the most male-dominated cultures that there were, extremely so. Women only had rights in the home, and even there, very limited ones, because we know that marriages were largely arranged, so you went from being under the control of your father to under the control of your husband. So you're controlled by him, and now you're controlled by him, but still a very male-dominated world. Marriages were arranged. Women didn't even have a choice over that. Women couldn't play a significant role in the synagogue due to their monthly cycle where they were considered unclean, which made them unavailable at certain times of the month, which meant that they weren't reliable to carry through on roles, so it disqualified them. There were so many things that limited women at the time. In the New Testament, women weren't even counted at gatherings. Imagine that. As we counted out our numbers today, that we just kind of hard down the middle. Half of those were women, so we'll just count the guys that were present. This is what we see in the feeding of the 5,000, right? There were 5,000 what? Men. Men. Oh, P.S. There were some women and kids there as well. That's kind of an insignificant detail at the bottom of the page. We see the, the, the first century Jewish worldview playing out here when it comes to women. So how did this idea of women being first to discover the tomb go down? Like a lead balloon, of course. Nobody would take that seriously. People would typically dismiss it just because of the gender of the witness. Yeah, all right, empty tomb, sure. Just like my two-year-old said there was a monster under their bed last night. Really? I'll take it that seriously. They weren't taking it seriously. But with the benefit of hindsight, as we look back, we can see this is anything but a sabotage on the Easter message. It has just the opposite effect because historians would say if you were going to invent a fable, you wouldn't choose this method. You wouldn't choose a woman as your key player. Don't get a movement established in that way. It would be one way to ensure its failure. Yet the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all four men consistently say the women got to the resurrection scene first. This could only mean one thing to my logical mind. It's actually true. It's actually a reliable witness. 
because if you were going to come up with a deceptive scheme in this environment, you wouldn't choose a woman. And in particular, you wouldn't choose this one. Not Mary Magdalene. I mean, she's wild. Do read in your own time the backstory. She's a crazy lady. Don't pick her. I mean, you couldn't pick a worse option than her. She's at the bottom of the list, a terrible choice. If you were going to make up the story, if you were going to make up the story, she's crazy with a capital C. She hasn't got a good reputation at all. So can you see the point this Easter Sunday? If you're going to make up a story, you wouldn't pick a woman, you wouldn't pick her as your star witness in the story. Now, some of you sit here today and go, Okie dokie, is that all you got? A crazy woman? It's being a key factor in the resurrection. You've got one crazy woman's word to base all this on. No, 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 we've got hundreds and hundreds of sightings of the risen Christ. Over 500 people on 11 different occasions saw the risen Christ and not only saw him, but saw him in multiple settings where he ate and where he did things that would, would indicate this is a real, literal, physical human that we are talking about. Jesus showed off his physical wounds, signifying a guy who was recently crucified. There's discernible markers of the risen, physical, living Jesus. This wasn't two guys at the local pub, you know, on their six, six drinks. Kind of looking out the window and going, Do you see that? Yeah, I saw it. I think I saw it. What, what did you see? This isn't the story here. There's hundreds and hundreds of people that validate this resurrection claim. But not only did they see him, the men in these accounts are transformed by the sightings of the risen Christ. So we have three considerations. I've taken too long in the first one. We're rushing over the next two quickly. The pioneering women, the transformed men in these accounts. A sensational something, something hit the men in these stories. It's undeniable. Now, the main, ma ma main male character we've read about today is Peter, and he epitomises this transformation of a guy who was heading in this direction up until resurrection, and he does a complete 180, and his life goes in this direction. So only a few days before, Peter is this guy who's predicted to deny Christ leading up to the resurrection. He goes, not me, never, ever. I mean, all this other riffraff around here, Jesus, I could see them. I could see them leaving you for dead when the going gets tough, but you can rely on me. This is Peter, until the heat comes on. And then leading up to the crucifixion where he felt that to align his life with Christ would actually, with Christ would actually cost him something, he kind of bows out and he, three times he denies even knowing Jesus, like, no, 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 don't know who you're talking about. This is Peter, at one point even approached by a slave girl. And, and to her, he won't even stand up and... and, and give his loyalty to Christ. He's just petrified. He's scared stiff. He's a chicken. He's boop, boop, boop. He's running for cover when trouble comes his way. What about post-resurrection? His life is transformed. If we read on into the book of Acts, 
the next book following on from this book of John. We see this transformation play out. This, this frightened guy a few days before becomes a fearless preacher of the gospel before many crowds. How do you explain that? How do you explain the transformation, if not for a resurrection? How does a guy go from being a scared chicken to a man full of faith, full of courage, full of fire? What happened to him if it wasn't a resurrection sighting? What came over him? What changed from the previous week? What turned him into this fiery preacher willing to stand up and declare it to the multitudes? How do we explain his courage meter going from zero to a ten if it's not a sighting of the risen Christ? How would you describe it? Japanese writer Endo says this, if you don't believe in the resurrection, you'll be forced to believe that what did hit the disciples was something other amazing event, different in kind, but of the same equal force to its electrifying intensity. Something happened to Peter. Now, if you're saying, well, I don't accept resurrection, then what do you, how do you explain that here's a guy now willing to lay down his life for the cause? when just days before was running and scurrying and hiding away from bearing any cost. What turned these bunch of scared men into a band of brothers who laid down their life and said, I'd be willing to die for this message? What, what gave them that conviction of heart if it wasn't seeing a resurrected Christ? Can you think of any other good reason to die for a message? I can't. I can't. Would you be willing to die for a claim that you knew was false? I mean, no one in their right mind would. I certainly wouldn't. Their tendency towards running at first sight of conflict has already been established. So where's all this courage come from? Where's all this courage come from? This begins to make some logical sense to me. The pioneering women, the first witnesses, that incredibly courageous men who are forever changed. One final consideration, the enduring influence. We must rush, I know, but hear this. Jesus Christ, he won't go away. The message continues to live on. If Jesus should tarry his coming, we will go away. We'll get 70, 80, 90 years, however long it is, but eventually... I don't want to sound too morbid here on such a happy occasion, but eventually we die. And eventually we get forgotten about. Maybe not from our immediate families, but on the whole, we live, we die, and we get forgotten about. But not Jesus. How do we explain that? Typically at Easter time, and especially Easter Monday, I'd be heading to the Melbourne cricket ground to watch my beloved AFL team play on Easter Monday. They're always in that time slot. And that's a game that, that, that draws a big crowd, sometimes 80,000 people there. And because of my previous role in retail, I used to often get tickets into... Uh, AFL reserve area. It's a really good area. And therefore, there would occasionally be, you know, famous people around, an ex-player, etc., in, in the 
seats around me or in the lift as you're going up and down and you way to your seats, etc. And sometimes I would recognise a former player just with the playing clothes on, sitting in the crowd. They might be in the next row or passing them on the stairs or whatever. You know, they were forgotten about. Those 80,000 people there were only interested in the ones on the field. They were being worshipped. They were being idolised. They were being cheered at. And here's this famous guy who's won premiership sitting in the next row over and no one's even recognising him. But how short is fame? Like, here today, gone tomorrow. So what about Jesus? How come he hasn't lost currency? How come 2021 years on, people are still talking about him? And if anything, popularity grows. I don't expect in 4,042 people will be talking about me. I mean, who here's got an ego that big? Do you think in 2021 years your name will still be getting bandied around? I certainly don't think that about myself. So why all of these years on? We're still talking about him. Why does the movement still live? Why the enduring influence? Why haven't the critics been able to put all this nonsense behind them? And just bury the Christ forever. Why hasn't this insane talk of resurrection been put to bed yet? Why does Christianity still endure, thrive even 2,000 years on, where 2.3 billion people claim loyalty to this risen Christ? Since the first Easter, people have been fighting off this message, writing off the book as a book of fairy tales. Critics complain, scoffers scoff, skeptics squabble. There's nothing new under the sun. Even when Jesus was here, they were trying to discredit his message and disprove his miracles, but any person with a rational mind would actually stop and examine that and go, well, if someone is so busy trying to cover up your miracles, doesn't that in itself legitimise that they actually happen? The Pharisees are so annoyed by his miracles, by this story breaking out, and they're trying to shut it down constantly, but they couldn't. They couldn't. If all of this Jesus being God and having miraculous power is just fairy tales, is just imaginary tales made up by loyal followers, then why? Why the enduring influence? I mean, there'd be no need to cover it all up, right? You just let it go if it's just a wild story. It's going to blow over. But why the enduring influence? Why haven't they managed to shut it down? There's an enduring influence in the resurrection message that in and of itself is a powerful testimony. There's something, there's something here to be taken very, very seriously. For me at least, all of this leads me to say resurrection becomes reasonable. How about you? How about you? Where are you at today as you consider the risen Christ? Jesus doesn't let us off the hook, you know, and just kind of be neutral. The risen Jesus says, I'm, I'm coming back to judge the world. I'm coming back as king. And I'd love you to be part of my family for you to be in on that celebration. And there's no better day than Easter Sunday than to throw your all in this on this resurrected king and say, I'll follow him. I'll place my life in his hands. If someone's powerful enough to conquer death, then they're powerful enough to handle my situation and my life.
Friday was a heart-focused message. Today has been a head-focused message. But, you know, this message should never finish just here. It starts here. It makes reasonable sense. But then as we accept it there, we let it flow down to here and we let it change our lives by reaching our hearts. Would you join me in prayer as the music team come back? Lord, how incredible it is that you came into our world, took on a physical body, put skin on, and lived and died and rose again in our sphere. Jesus, you became a man. You became part of humanity in order to reach humanity. We thank you for Easter. We thank you for the crucifixion and for what was accomplished when you hung on that old rugged cross. And we thank you for, for Resurrection Sunday and, and this truth that you actually did it, Jesus. You got up and rose from the dead. You overcame. And this teaches us, Lord, that whatever it is we are facing, we can overcome as we walk with you and follow you. And as today we remember you with communion, we do so with joyful hearts, knowing that there is a day coming. There is a day coming. There's a family party planned. When we come together with you and we eat and drink and we remember that we only arrived in your family, we only ever reconciled with God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so today we put our faith and trust in you. If you've never done that before, you can do it right now in this moment. You can let this message go from your head to your heart just by saying, Jesus, I recognise you as the Son of God and I put my faith and trust in you today. I hand my life over. I repent, which simply means I turn away from my way of doing things and I turn to you and to your way of doing things and I acknowledge that you are the Lord, that you are the one who are best to call the shots in my life. So Lord, take my life this Easter and have your way as I commit to following you.